If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Get the champagne ready. The NBA Finals are here. Welcome to the NBA Finals. Let's raise our glasses and our rings to the two phenomenal teams left standing. My goodness! Here's the high-stakes action to thrilling moments we can't miss. He ties the game at the buzzer. And to crowning our next champion. Here's a toast to the NBA Finals. The 2024 NBA Finals, presented by YouTube TV, begin Thursday, June 6th on ABC. Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything. So you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well-dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. When discussing Mary, Queen of Scots, many historians focus on her English imprisonment or her early years as the French Queen. But Rosemary Goring's new book, Homecoming, delves into Mary's Scottish years, exploring her ill-fated reign and connections with various Scottish landmarks, from imposing castles to bloody battlefields. Rhiannon Davis spoke to Rosemary to find out more. What were the advantages for you when you were writing this book, being able to actually visit the places that she lived in? A huge advantage, I think, to understand Mary properly, um, looking at the places where she made history, where she actually slept, where she had meetings, where she met people, where she went to fight, gives you just that extra dimension on the story about her. It allows you to try and put yourself back into the picture as well. I mean, I know it's very difficult from today's perspective to try and understand how people thought and lived in the past, but the buildings really help you try and put together this kind of strange historical jigsaw. 
And can you give us an example of a building you visited to reconstruct for listeners just how different they would have been when we're seeing them today with 21st century eyes to how Mary and her contemporaries would have experienced them? Well, I'll mention Hermitage Castle, which is um, in the Scottish borders in a very dark, dangerous part of the borders. And it at the moment is just an immense ruin. There's not very much left of it. It's a huge military place, very frightening, very alarming. And when Mary went there, it would not have looked, it would have been very imposing and intimidating to look at the outside. But when you went inside, it had basically five-star luxury accommodation. But to those of us today walking in, it's just this crumbling, mossy, damp uh, ruin, which actually is very alarming. It has an atmosphere all of its own. And so I think you can't really um, picture exactly what, what it was like for her then. But the, the location of the place, the scale of it, give you a great idea. And I think partly because I also write fiction, I think it's really important sometimes to see a place that's a ruin because you can bring more to it than a place that has been reconstructed in this style of. Because that always, to me, feels just a little airless as though it's somebody else's idea of the past and what they can't do and what we'll never be able to recreate is how somewhere smelled or quite what people were seeing out of the window or what the people around them looked like when the way they were dressed or even how they smelled. Definitely. Well, I definitely like to discuss more of the places that Mary was connected with later in our conversation. But now I'd like to look at Mary's life itself and particularly her early years, because you write in your book that she stayed in Scotland until she's five. What are her earliest years there like? To begin with, from her perspective, I think they would be pretty idyllic. She didn't know that her father died when she was six days old, which is when she became queen. Her mother, Mary of Guise, was a very astute um, woman, very politically um, clever and a great tactician. She had some flaws in that direction, but she was very good. And she was also a very warm mother. I mean, she had lost two children prior to prior to Mary, having Mary, um, and she'd left one child in France when she came over to Scotland to marry. And so I think Mary would have been exceptionally precious to her. So the early years where Mary, she was born in a Lithgow palace, but because of the fears of Henry VIII wanting to wrench her out of Scottish control to marry his son, she was taken very quickly to um, Stirling Castle, which was a much better fortified place. And um, there she was brought up in tremendous luxury in new apartments that her father and grandfather had helped to, to construct. And so she would have had a very pleasant upbringing. Her mother would have been partly a tutor. She would have had um, people on hand just for everything she needed. She would have had also a lot of friends to play with. Other members of the court, her, her father's illegitimate offspring would also have been friends in various of the places she lived. So there was nothing to be sorry for with her in her childhood at all. And how is it she came to leave Scotland then? That is because of the great fear of Henry VIII and what might happen. And at this point, when she's in her five, coming up six, you can feel very sorry for her and possibly even sorrier for her mother, who packed her off to France to her own family at the French court for her to be brought up in safety, always knowing that she would come back to Scotland at some point, or at least hoping that she would. And Mary was sent off with a, a big entourage. She had four Marys, her um, closest maids in waiting, who happened to be called Mary, all of them. She had various members of the Scottish court, very high-ranking 
people, aristocrats and officials with her. So in a way, Scotland moved to France. There was a little court from Scotland in the centre of the French court. And when she became old enough, when she was 12 and 13, she was given her own place at court and she was treated as though she was a queen in her own right, which of course she was. But she was also the French queen in waiting because she was going to marry the French king's son. So at that point, when she was in France, she had an extraordinarily um, luxurious and fetid childhood. She was seen as being extraordinarily beautiful. She was very well-mannered. She had a sense of humour. And it seemed, despite not having her mother there, her mother only visited once, although it was for a long visit, um, she had a fantastic time. And how is it that she comes back to Scotland? Her husband, the Dauphin of France, became the King of France, and he'd always been a very sickly boy, they're not even very sure when Mary and he married if it was ever consummated or even possible for them for them to have a real marriage, and he died uh, very young, very soon after they were married. They'd only been married about eighteen months, and so at that point, Mary was in a kind of limbo because her mother-in-law Catherine de Medici did not want Mary to marry another of her sons and carry on becoming queen of or staying as queen of France. And Mary began to weigh up her options and she was looking to marry elsewhere within Europe. She was very interested in the son of the King of Spain, despite he had a lot of drawbacks, both mentally and physically. But eventually she was um, persuaded by the Scots who said, you're very welcome back in Scotland. I think she realised that this was the next direction she had to take. And so I think with a huge amount of regret, she left France, sailed for Scotland and arrived in the thickest of fogs, which a lot of people have seen as a metaphor for what was about to happen. And while she was away in France, Scotland has really transformed, hasn't it, with the Reformation? Can you tell us about the country she's coming back to? What's it like? It's like something she would never have recognised. Obviously, she left it before she was six, so her perceptions of the country would also have always been to do with the, with the court. She would not have known a great deal about the people of Scotland. She wouldn't have mingled that much with them. And she came back almost exactly a year after the Reformation had happened. So a country that, when she left, had been Catholic like so much of Europe and was very familiar, and she herself was a brought, raised a Catholic and a very devout Catholic, she came back to a country which had religiously turned upside down. This was now a Protestant country, and it was in the hands of a very, um, some might say, ferocious Protestant clique who were defending this new faith because they hadn't actually legally been allowed to turn the country Protestant. And so she, within a few months of that, she was returning to a place that she was expected to rule, despite insisting that she remained a Catholic, which was, of course, a huge fault line through her monarchy thereafter. It was an inherently unstable situation for her. Do you think she was prepared to rule? On one level, yes, she would have been instructed by the, her uncles, the, the Guise uncles in France, the Duke and the Cardinal. Um, she would have been well instructed in the, the statecraft and the, the craft of being a monarch. But I, I think of it as she was instructed in a French accent. I don't think she was prepared for what Scotland was like. Um, and the French experience of, of monarchy and royalty was much more splendid and more aloof than what she found when she came to Scotland, where it was much more kind of first among equals, or at least that was that was what her nobles thought and what um, her predecessors had allowed them to think, even though actually they were very much in control as monarchs themselves. So I don't really think she was fully prepared. 
Um, I think it would have come as a tremendous shock to her to discover um, the factions that were at court, um, one of them profoundly against her. And I think also she was extremely young. She was still 18 when she stepped off the ship in Leith and said hello to Scotland again. I mean, that's tremendously young. Now, there have been many monarchs who took up the throne younger than that um, and succeeded well. But I think for her, this was slowly, it became overwhelming, not initially, but slowly. And I wanted to ask you about a quote from the book, which is, whatever else can be said about her short and ultimately pitiful reign and the anguish of the years that followed, it was better for her and for Scotland that she took up her throne. Why do you think that is? Oh, definitely think that's true. (laughs) Good, I'm agreeing with myself here, (laughs) which is just as well. Because I imagine Scotland with a figurehead where the where the real monarch ought to have been. You know, she was she was the queen, whether she was in Scotland or not. If she had married um, another royal in Europe and stayed in that country, say it was Spain, and only occasionally visited Scotland, the country would have run entirely in its own direction. And I think she would just have felt like a, a sort of a cipher, a ceremonial figure. And in a period as complex and warring as the 16th century, that would not have been good for Scotland at all. Mm. And you mentioned earlier in our conversation the nobles who think that perhaps they are not as important as Mary, but certainly getting there. What's her relationship like with them, and in particular her half-siblings, so the illegitimate children? Yeah. Well, with some of her nobles, um, she she got on well enough, I think. I don't think she was particularly close to, to any of them. Uh, you would have thought that she would have been great friends with um, the Earl of Huntley, who was a huge Catholic magnate in the north of the country. But in fact, she did everything she could to, as they say, clip his wings. Her half-brother, um, Murray, the Earl of Murray, um, was a very interesting, slippery figure. She really trusted him. He was one of um, her half-brothers through her father's illegitimate brood, and there were a lot of them. I don't think history knows the full extent of the number of illegitimate children that James V had. But um, with him, she initially trusted him too much, thinking that he was family and she had a great belief in familial bonds and, and how you ought to work well together with family. And it was only gradually that she discovered that actually he was working in a different direction from from her, partly ideological because he was a um, devout Protestant and partly for personal reasons because he felt, I think, that he would be a better ruler of the country. She had other half-siblings. One was called John. She went to a wedding of his quite early in her reign, was obviously very amicable. Um, One of her half-sisters, Jean Stewart, was one of her close attendants, was actually with her on the night that Rizzio was murdered um, right beside her. So I think also by nature she was a very affable, friendly and generous individual. And it took a while for her to think badly of people. And that, of course, is not a great asset if you're running a country which, as you might see, it is like sort of ferrets in a sack. And do you think her being a woman was a barrier to being a successful monarch? Not necessarily. There had been other successful women um, rulers in her time and before. And if you just look at Elizabeth I, what a successful monarch she was. And being a woman was in no way a hindrance for her whatsoever. I think in some ways, you know, Mary was a very feminine woman and I think it was important for her 
to marry, not just because it was a strategic thing to do and it was important to have somebody who would bolster her authority. Um, so to that extent, perhaps um, she was at a disadvantage in that she was looking for a husband through much of her reign and she was a very bad picker of men. Well, let's delve into this more. Who does she pick for her second husband? She picks the atrocious Darnley, Henry um, Lennox. He was described as a popinjay by one of her um, court and one another courtier said he was more like a, a woman than a man to look at, which is a very bitchy comment. He was extremely tall, elegant, obviously somewhat um, feminine in his appearance. He loved clothes. He was always at the cutting edge of fashion. Um, but beneath all of that, he was an extremely treacherous, untrustworthy and actually quite violent individual. He was very unpleasant to people. And she discovered this quite soon after they were married. The happy part of their marriage did not last very long. It was more like an infatuation on her part. But you can also understand it, given that she didn't have her mother there to give her any advice. The court around her, while she had maids in waiting or ladies in attendance, she didn't have anybody of great um, intellect advising her and her allowing them to advise her. She had people like that, but she didn't listen to them always. And I think she was lonely. I think she needed somebody by her side. And she very mistakenly thought Darnley was the right person, but he could not have been worse. And you mentioned his treachery. Can you expand on that a bit for us? Well, yes, in one word, Rizzio. Poison was dripped into Darnley's ear. Um, and it was suggested that Rizzio, who was Mary's secretary, he'd been an Italian singer who'd come across as part of a singing and musicians group at the court. And when most of that party went back to Europe, Mary kept him on as her secretary. He was hopeless as a secretary. She spent a lot of time undoing his mistakes, but she was obviously very fond of him. They had a really good relationship. Mary loved music, as did Darnley. It's one of the good things you can say about him. They both loved music. Um, and Rizzio and Mary became increasingly close while Mary was pregnant with her first and only live-born child. And so one of the courtiers at court who was really wanting to bring Mary down suggested to Darnley that actually an affair was going on with Rizzio uh, because Mary would stay up late at night playing cards with him while Darnley was out on the town womanising and, and drinking and allegedly sleeping with other men as well. So he decided that it was time to get rid of Rizzio and assert his authority. And it's also possible that he was wanting to get rid of his wife and unborn child at the same time because he saw a possibility of becoming the ruler of Scotland. And he was exceedingly miffed that Mary had not allowed him to, um, to become the titular king of Scotland. And she, he was just raging about this. He had no feelings for her other than for what he could get out of her. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Bothwell was also becoming one of the most hated men in Scotland and yet she went on to marry him, which was, of all the mistakes she made, probably the most serious and the most difficult to comprehend. And thinking about Rizzio's murder from a slightly different perspective, a real strength, I thought, of your book was how you really... Um, tie it down to locations in Scotland and give a real sense to readers of what these places are like. And you mention a bloodstain. Can you tell us a bit about this? <laughs> there were, Rizzio was murdered in Mary's private apartments. 
she had a set of rooms, a bit like uh, Russian dolls. There was a there's a bedroom, and off that there was a little supper room, which was smaller, which is where she was having supper with Rizzio on the night he was murdered, and with various other people. But when Darnley and Lord Rothman, who was the person who was first wielding the knife against them, came into the room and dragged Rizzio out, they dragged him through her bedroom and then into her audience chamber, which is a big formal room just beyond her bedroom. And he was stabbed there a further 56 times. And it's said that that the blood stain that was um, obviously a huge amount of blood would have come out of him uh, was still or is. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, Not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle still visible on these floorboards, even though the floorboards have actually been replaced. People people still say that they can see the, the bloodstain. Um, Walter Scott had a very amusing anecdote about uh, somebody who'd been visiting in Victorian times, had been taken around the palace and was fascinated to see this stain because he was a detergent salesman. And so he whipped something out of his pocket and said, I can get this stain out even if I'd been there for 500 years. This miraculous product will do that. It was called scouring drops. And I think that the housekeeper of the palace was appalled to see this man on his knees. He was sort of doing a kind of product placement in the palace. But with this horrific event happening here then, do you think it's fair to say that would be Mary's most hated place in Scotland? Or would another location fit that bill? No, I think that's a fair I think that's a fair assessment. I mean there may be two contenders for places that she would never have wanted to see again, but definitely Holyrood Palace. She was haunted by what had happened there. It would be very odd if she hadn't been haunted. And to th- the thought of going back into her rooms there, which of course she had to do, but she couldn't do it immediately. I think she was just uh, appalled. And the other place where I think she probably could never have set foot again willingly was Lochleven Castle, where she was imprisoned and where she miscarried twins by Bothwell, her third husband. I don't think she would ever have wanted to see that again. It was a horrifying um, incident where she was you know, taken there as a prisoner, as somebody who had you know, done Scotland down and was being treated as if she was a criminal. 
And then she was in captivity there with very little support around her and never knowing if she was going to get off the island and also never knowing if she'd get off alive because it would have been very easy out of the eye of the public for people to have said that she'd become so despairing that she had thrown herself off the tower, etc. So that is another ghastly location for her. But I think Holyrood Palace even more because of the violence done right beside her. And we'll come to Bothwell later on, but on the flip side of her most hated place, where do you think she was most at home? I think the Falkland Palace in Fife was definitely one of the places that she loved. It was her holiday home, really. It was set in the middle of a forest. She loved going there as a retreat. Originally, it had been a a serious royal residence, but the Stuart kings began to see it as one of their favourite playtime areas where they would have guests where they would um, go hunting, where they could get away from the eyes of the of the crowd. And the forest around it almost seemed to protect it from public view. And it is a most spectacular palace. It's beautiful. Um, it's been recreated these days, so you can imagine what it would have been like. But um, it's an absolute architectural gem. It's a little bit of France in the middle of, in the middle of Fife. And that's really unexpected and, and wonderful. She loved there. She also liked a place called Borthwick Castle, which is in Midlothian, not far from the borders, um, a great castellated um, house where she would go for rest and recreation. Um, in the end, she ended up shouting from the battlements at, at her enemies, but that, that was in the future. At the time, she used to love going there. And she also loved Seton Palace, which was in East Lothian. Again, a very graceful place where she could just um, play play Paul Mall, shoot at the butts. She was very interested in archery. She was a great huntswoman. She loved riding. She was a very outdoor person. And so both at Falkland and at Seton, she was allowed to feel as if she was a country girl again. She loved that. And after that lovely respite, we're going back into the narrative. So picking up from Rizzio's murder, and sadly, it's becoming a bit of a darker tale, isn't it? Yes. What happens to Lord Darnley? Lord Darnley. He does not um, do well by himself. He and Mary grow increasingly estranged and it becomes obvious to everybody that what was, you know, a marriage under tremendous pressure was suddenly going to, you know, come to a bad end one way or another. And Mary got so despairing about their situation that after the birth of her child, their child, James, future James VI and first of England, um, she confided that she couldn't, see how she could go on if he were still around and she began to consider her options of divorcing him or having the marriage annulled but neither of those really fitted with her Catholic beliefs because she couldn't divorce him in Catholic law and if it was annulled then she couldn't remarry um, as she wanted to so she was really in torment about this. The people around her of course saw Darnley as just such a danger to the future of Scotland because he was trying to set himself up as a potential Catholic monarch within Catholic Europe and so oust the Protestants. And they wanted him gone as much as Mary did. And so whether or not she was involved in this plot, there's, you know, today, to this day, people still question whether she knew that they planned to murder him. Bothell is the one who helped carry out the deed, but Darnley had, was staying in Kirkerfield 
in Edinburgh, I should maybe explain that he'd been really, really ill, tremendously ill, and Mary had encouraged him to come back to Edinburgh to recuperate, but she didn't want him at the palace because he was too ill and he might infect their son. She either did know he had syphilis or she just pretended that she um, knew that. So he was very unwell. He recovered in Kirkerfield and he was going to be brought back to the palace the next day when the house beneath him exploded one night and he and his servant seemed to have been found in the in the gardens, but he had not died in the explosion. He had actually been strangled. And so he had been murdered when the first murder attempt didn't work. And so, of course, Mary was seen as being implicit or sort of involved in all of this. And Bothwell was also becoming one of the most hated men in Scotland. And yet she went on to marry him, which was, of all the mistakes she made, probably the most serious and the most difficult to comprehend. Mm. And we'll come on to that marriage in just a moment. But before then, you mentioned that it's still contested whether Mary was involved in the plot. What do you think? I think it's very hard to be sure. I think she might have known that they were talking about doing this. And at one point she did say, don't do anything that would be bring disgrace to me or harm my son in any way, so his reputation. So to that extent, she must have guessed that the violence was in the wings and we were talking about it, but she wanted to distance herself from that and explicitly did say, do not do this, do not do anything like that. And yet it's difficult to imagine that she didn't know that they were going to go and do it anyway. It's very hard to unpick. She was not a malevolent person. I think she was um, a kind-hearted woman, essentially. I think the thought of murder would have appalled her. And yet she brought Darnley to Edinburgh, where his enemies were, and so almost placed him in their lap. So you have to make of that what you will. And after her marriage to Darnley, as you mentioned, she ends up with Bothwell, who is perhaps an even worse character to be associated with. How does this marriage bring about Mary's downfall? I would maybe argue that he's not a, that he's a worse character because I don't think he was as treacherous as Darnley. He'd been incredibly loyal to Mary of Guise and he remained incredibly royal, loyal to Mary long before they, they married. Now, some of that might have been to his own ends because it was convenient for him to do that. And he was a violent man and he was incredibly crude and boorish. But I don't think he was bad to the core in the way that you probably could say that Darnley was. However, it brought about Mary's end because the public, seeing her marrying, marrying the prime suspect in her second husband's death, um, just suddenly thought, what kind of woman is this? And rumours went around that she had been having an affair with Bothwell long before Darnley was dead. There's absolutely no evidence of that whatsoever. And I suspect, knowing Mary, she would not have countenanced something like that. She was careful of her reputation up to a point. But at this point, you have Mary and Bothwell shoring up Mary's position against the, the rebel lords who are starting to, to gain momentum and they want Mary off the throne, and they do not think that she is a suitable person to be on the throne. And so it all ends in a battle at Carberry Hill and Carberry Fields in East Lothian, where she and Bothwell and their men, the Royalists, are pitted against the Protestants who want them gone. And from there, she's taken a prisoner. She ends up a captive in Loch Leven Castle. She escapes, and she and her people try again 
on the battlefield to, to, to win the day, and that fails. And so she then flees. That then is the end of her kind of her happy, her happy reign or unhappy reign. And why was it when you were writing this book that you decided to focus on her Scottish years rather than her time in France, her captivity in England? I feel that she is a Scottish queen and that all stories about her and histories of her look at the whole picture. But I wanted to see to what extent her Scottishness impacted on the decisions that she made. And also to ask the question, to what extent is Scotland or was Scotland responsible for much of what happened to her? How much was her blame and how much was Scotland's? And in the end, you have to look purely at what happens within Scotland to, to answer that. And also, I just think that the, the Scottish part of her story is in many ways the core part of her story. What happens when she goes into captivity in England is fascinating, um, but she wouldn't have been there but for what had happened and the decisions she had made when she was queen in Scotland. So if we were going to assign blame then to either Mary or to Scotland, which do you think was the biggest factor in her reign ultimately failing? I think, I'm sorry to sit on the fence with this, I don't totally sit on the fence because I think she was in, in an impossible situation. I think even an incredibly astute, wise and well-advised monarch would have had trouble being a Catholic in a newly um, reformed country. I think that the forces that were going on in, in Europe and with England next door as a Protestant nation very worried about Mary's claim to the throne there, which was very real. All of these conspired against her ever fully succeeding or succeeding at all. But I also think she had tremendous flaws of character as well as having some amazing attributes. I think she was rash. I think she made um, poor decisions. I think also that she went into a sort of a mental turmoil at various points, which um, showed itself as physical ailments and illnesses. And she also was physically ill, and to some extent they think it may have been with an ulcer. Um, she just was not sufficiently equipped mentally or intellectually for the problems that she faced. And she did not have the coterie around her who allow, would have allowed her and would have helped many other monarchs to, to succeed and to overcome these enormous hurdles. If you could walk around one of the locations in your book with Mary, what would you want to ask her? I would love to see her in somewhere like Stirling Castle, which is one of the great fortresses in Scotland. And I would love to ask her to look out from one of the windows where you can see close towards the highlands and yet you can also look south. So she's kind of in the middle of her kingdom. And I would love to ask her what she regrets most about what she did? That's the big question. And for my final question for this interview, how can Mary's legacy still be seen in Scotland's physical fabric? I'm not sure that she had much to do with the physical fabric because she wasn't a builder like her father and her grandfather. She didn't um, change palaces. She didn't have things rebuilt. If we still had all her furnishings and her wardrobes full of clothes, you could see that aspect of her. But actually, she kind of moved in as if it was into a new build home, into all these wonderfully renovated or magnificent palaces and castles that her, her dad and grandfather had done so much to, because this was a passion of theirs. And she just lived in them as if they had been done entirely for her. 
So I'm not sure that you can see her legacy in the buildings, but the buildings certainly evoke her and her period and time. And if they don't tell you about her character exactly, they tell you about the times that she lived in and what she had to live with. That was Rosemary Goring. Her book, Homecoming, is published by Berlin and on sale now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.